Our Father, as we come to you this morning, we do so with humility, recognizing that what you did for us is so far beyond our ability to even comprehend that all we can do is accept by faith that God came in the flesh and dwelt among us and that his name was Jesus, that he is the one who became Yahweh incarnate. And Father, we're so grateful that we can know that one whom to know is life eternal and that you will fill us with the joy of the Spirit of God. Lord, we, we live at a time when, when there's a lot of Christmas activity going on, but with no emphasis upon the Christ of Christmas. I pray that our hearts will be focused on what you did for us, and that as we celebrate, our celebration will be focusing on truth, on the joy and the peace that comes through the Savior who has given his life for us. Father, I pray that our lives and our celebration will be a witness to others as to the true meaning of Christmas. We ask, Father, that you will bless us this morning in our study of your word, because we know that every bit of your word, from the first of Genesis to the end of Revelation, is the proclamation of God to us, which came in fleshly form in the Logos, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that we will uh, take the word in its total into our hearts and minds, and that it will shape us in the way that you would have us to be. I ask that you'll be present in the service that is uh, transpiring concurrently and in every Sunday school class this morning. And I pray that around the world this day, your spirit will be drawing men and women into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you will turn to the 33rd chapter of the book of Numbers, it's interesting that we turn to Matthew and we turn to Luke and we read from Isaiah so forth to read the quote Christmas story but the Christmas story is found throughout scripture because the Christmas story is God coming to us to draw us unto himself and that begins in Genesis and it continues completely through the 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation and we find this even here in the 33rd chapter of Numbers it is God working in the lives of his people to draw them to himself. So let's read again, beginning at verse 50. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, and destroy all their figured stones, and destroy all their molten images, and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and live in it. For I have given the land to you to possess it. And you shall inherit the land by lot according to your families. To the larger you shall give more inheritance and to the smaller you shall give less inheritance. Wherever the lot falls to anyone, that shall be his. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come about that those whom you let remain of them will become as pricks in your eyes and as thorns in your sides. And they shall trouble you in the land in which you live. And it shall come about that as I plan to do to them, so I will do to you. Last Sunday we looked at the first portion of this particular passage of Scripture. And we noticed that what God demanded of his people was fidelity. And this is, of course, what God demands of all of his people, is fidelity. 
faithfulness to him. He has been supremely faithful. He has been faithful without pure, and he has done for his people far beyond anything we could ever hope or deserve. And God told the people of Israel that as you move into the land, you must purge the land of every image of a pagan god because he knew so well how this would, would serve as a temptation to them. Not only the images themselves, because many times the images were not much of anything. In fact, some of them were nothing more than a, than a pillar. In, in some cases, they were not very attractive even as far as the visual image, but it was what was associated with the worship that was extremely attractive to, to human nature. And so God said, destroy it, eliminate it, completely clean it out of the land. Uh, there were not to be these high places scattered all across the land where you just trot up there and you know, do your little obeisance to some little deity and then go on about your life. No, life was to focus on a central focus, a central point, and that point was to be the worship of God at the tabernacle and ultimately at the temple with the worship based on the uh, sacrifices made before the entrance to the tabernacle or to the temple. God could be worshipped anywhere in, of course, spirit, in heart. But in terms of carrying out the activities of worship, it was to take place at one place at one time. Not all, all over the land as it was occurring here amongst the pagan Canaanites. God wanted his people to choose to follow him. And they expressed that choice by the obedience of cleaning out the high places throughout the land and then following in the way which he had prescribed through Moses so clearly as it is given to us in the Pentateuch. Secondly, we discover in this particular passage that God told them how to live successfully in the land. And we read that in verses 30, uh, 53 and, and 54. He said, you can live successfully in the land, first of all, by accepting it as my gift. I've given you the land. You accept it from me as my gift to you. Without trying to press that too hard, I think that there's an attitude here that God is dealing with. And that's the attitude that we take from God's hand what he gives to us and we turn to him thanksgiving. And we don't say, well, I wish we had that land over there or some land over somewhere else or I had my neighbor's wife or whatever. You know, this, this whole attitude uh, God is dealing with in, in his people and converse and, and parallelly to, with us too, that we accept whatever God brings into our lives and we give him thanksgiving and we move forward from there according to his plan for us and his purpose for us. He, he instructed them not only were they to accept the land as a gift, but he said the land was to be divided equally according to the size of the tribes. One of the things you discover as you read throughout the whole scripture is God is very concerned with justice. And if we get there today, we'll be looking at how, how he established certain cities through the land that were to be places of refuge because of his concern with justice. But God's concern was that those the larger tribes receive larger pieces of land, the smaller tribes receive smaller pieces of land. And therefore, the land was to be divided equally according to the size of the tribes and of the clans. Then lastly, he says in the same passage that they were to keep the land within the families throughout the generations down through time. Now, we talked about this, oh, several months before. The one, of the, one of the great uh, temptations in, in human nature is greed acquisitiveness. We want to collect things for ourselves. 
And that was true of Israel as, as it is even of people today. And in order for people to provide for themselves in that day, you know, they couldn't run down to the nearest uh, employment department and say, I need a job, and maybe somebody will find them a job over here somewhere. In those days, you lived from the land. You were a farmer. The vast bulk of the people who lived in the land in those days were farmers or they were herdsmen. And if they possessed no land, they were basically stripped of their ability to earn a living. And if they were stripped of their ability to earn a living, they were, in effect, stripped of their citizenship in the community. And so it was very important that the land be maintained and that the family be able to keep its possession in perpetuity down through the centuries, no matter what happened. And that's why the institution of Jubilee came along. And we talked about that before, where land would revert at a certain point in time, basically twice a century, to the original owners. In the latter part of this passage, God warned them of the consequences of disobedience. One of the things we can say about God is that uh, he doesn't leave us guessing. God makes it quite clear what we are to do and quite clear what happens if we don't do it. And that is true throughout Scripture. It starts out in Genesis, right off the bat in the garden, and it goes all the way through to the very end of the New Testament. And what we discover here is he says to them, if you do not drive out the Canaanites, which I've commanded you to do, that they will become, and as it's described here, as barbs in your eyes, as thorns in your side. They will not just be absorbed and, and disappear. They will not just be isolated somewhere and ignored. They will be a constant harassment to you. And we can bring that closely parallel to what exists over there today. Not that I'm saying what's happening today is, is directly related to this, but as you know, the current situation in Israel is a bit topsy-turvy. And the um, Palestinians who live in the midst of Israel are literally a thorn in the side, and vice versa, of course, the Palestinians would say, of the Israelis. And, and that's the way it would become. If they didn't eliminate all these Canaanite peoples, those Canaanite peoples would rise up one day and, and be a, you know, a venomous uh, source within their midst. And therefore, they were to drive them out. And of course, what we discover historically is what? They didn't drive them all out. And as a result, they would rise up to curse them. And I think today we've inherited the long-term effect of that. Even though we're talking about four, well, we're talking about 3,000 years worth of history here. You look at it in detail and you'll discover that all of its cumulative, cumulative effect of this disobedience. And what God says, not only that, what I told you to do to them, I'll do to you. Because you didn't chase them out, I'll chase you out. And if that wasn't prophetic, <laughs> I don't know what is. Because that's exactly what will happen. You know, in the 8th century, they'll be chased out by the Assyrians. In the 6th century, they'll be chased out by the Babylonians. And then they'll be attacked by the Greeks, uh, beginning with Alexander the Great. And, and then they'll be dealt with by the Romans. And the Romans will scatter them from the land. And they'll go into the diaspora. And, well, they're collecting back in, since the late 19th century. But they would be scattered from the land. And this is the history of the people of Israel. Let's look at chapter 34, the first 12 verses. Chapter 34, beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, even the land of Canaan according to its borders. Your southern sector shall extend from the wilderness of Zin, 
along the side of Edom, and your southern border shall extend from the end of the Salt Sea eastward. Now, the Salt Sea always means the Dead Sea. Then your border shall turn direction from the south to the ascent of Akrabim and continue to Zin, and its termination shall be to the south of Kadesh Barnea, and it shall reach Hazaradar and continue to Asman. And the border shall turn direction from Asmon to the brook of Egypt, and its termination shall be at the sea. As for the western border, you shall have the great sea. The great sea is always the Mediterranean. That is its coastline. This shall be your west border. This shall be your north border. You shall draw your border line from the great sea to Mount Hor. You shall draw a line from Mount Hor to the label Hamath, and the termination of the border shall be at Zedad. And the border shall proceed to Ziphron, and its termination shall be at Hazarinan. This shall be your north border. For your eastern border, you shall draw a line from Hazarinan to Shephaim. And the border shall go down from Shephaim to Riblah on the east side of Ain. And the border shall go down and reach to the slope of the east side of the Sea of Kinnereth. And the border shall go down to the Jordan, and its termination shall be at the Salt Sea. This shall be your land according to its borders all around. Now, obviously, if you have not studied the geography of this area in any detail, a lot of those names just, you know, are relatively meaningless. But let me say that many of those names cannot be exactly identified today either in terms of exactly where uh, this went to. But the map that I have given to you basically outlines the actual and then the conjectural borders according to what are believed to have been these parameters that are given to you in this uh, particular passage. Now, first of all, let me say this. These were the borders authorized by God to Israel. But these are not the borders realized by Israel at that time, for the mo in, in, particularly in the north and in the south. Well, the western border, yes. You can't do anything with the western border. It's the Mediterranean Sea, right? Can't push that one way or the other. That's it. And generally speaking, they possessed up to the Mediterranean. Of course, the Philistines will possess part of it at one point, and the Phoenicians will present, possess another part of it. So they really won't even possess that entire western border. But that, that border would be pretty well fixed. During the reigns of David and Solomon, some 400 years later, Israel will actually press to these borders as you see them described here. Okay? But we have to understand that they didn't really occupy all that land. David possessed all the way to the Euphrates River at the height of his power, but the Israelites did not possess that land in the sense of moving in, taking over, and shoving out the Syrians because the Syrians lived there, the Arameans of various tribes lived there, and they simply were subservient to David. They were not eliminated by Israel. Now, let me just extract this uh, little parallelism here, and if, if you think I'm pushing it too far, then fine, ignore it. But before we criticize Israel too strongly, I, I think as we think about this now, these are people who are walking forward under the direction of Moses and under the direction of Joshua and Eleazar. God is their leader and they're occupying this land. They have to go in there and they have to fight these people. They have to capture these cities. They have to push the enemy out, okay? So let's be real about it here. We could say they had inadequate vision. They didn't see the whole border that God had given to them. We could say they had limited faith. They didn't push it as far as God said for them to go. We could say they were half-hearted in their obedience. And that would be true. But think about ourselves. Is our vision always 
as it ought to be, as God gives it to us? Do we exercise faith to the degree that God commands that we have faith? Are we fully obedient in every instance as God has ordained us to be? I think one of the reasons that it's important to study the Old Testament is we're looking in a mirror. And we're looking in a mirror at ourselves. And sometimes we really, we've laughed about this before, you know, because we keep reading about, and then Israel disobeyed God again. You know, we think, oh man, you know. It's like an engine running on six cylinders. It keeps missing. And they kept missing. Well, so do we. But God is still faithful. And God stays with Israel, even though there is a point at which he will allow them to be dispersed. And as you bring parallels from the New Testament, we've talked about this before, look at the church at Ephesus. God said to the church of Ephesus through John that if you don't return to your first love, I will remove your torch, your, your candle lamp. And if you go over there today, you'll find there not only isn't a church in Ephesus, there isn't even an Ephesus. It's a ruin. Uh, I mean, God at some point yanked the candle stick from Ephesus. Because the church lost its vision. It's lost its first love. It, it, it wandered away. It, I, I think it is imperative that we personally look at this and consider the fact that we need to build our faith. We need to build our vision and we need to watch our obedience. That we take all the land that God has given to us to occupy, whatever that might be. And it's different for every individual. God has set for each of us a path. And this is the path that we're to walk on. He has given to us a certain area of responsibility. And, and this is our area. And the degree to which we stay in that path and occupy that area of responsibility is the degree to which our vision is what he would have it to be. Our faith is what he would have it to be. And our obedience is what he would have it to be. What we derive from this that's encouraging is, of course, the fact that God doesn't say, you blew it, whack you know, and you're gone forever from the pages of history. Because Israel's not gone from the pages of history. Israel is still here. God is not finished with her yet. And God is not finished with our purpose, however grand it might seem or however mundane it might seem. You know, sometimes the mundaneness of our obedience is just giving a cold, cup of cold water to somebody who's thirsty. We might think, oh man, that doesn't require, that doesn't deserve any reward. Well, that's not what the scripture says. An act of obedience, no matter how little or how great, is, is rewarded by God. And, and that is to be our goal. Not that we should say, okay, well, we took some of the land. That's, that's okay. God should be happy with that. No, God wants us to take all of the land. That's our part to take. And so I think from that we can derive the truth of what it means to us as we look at what happened to Israel. Some of the place names given in this passage are uncertain or unknown to us today. But I think we can get a rough idea. And if you look at that map for a moment, I'd like to start at the north end of the map. The scripture begins at the other end, but I, being a typical American, always have to start at the top of the map and work down, you know. Even though if you go over and study with the Institute of Holy Land Studies, they turn the whole map sideways. Uh, because they did the great, uh, what did they call that uh, project where they did all the slides in parallel? The uh, Anyway, whenever they, uh, they developed this project where they would go into churches and try to teach you about the land, and because Israel's a very tall, skinny country, they laid everything over on the side so that they could put it on screens. And so you look at Israel with the top over here and the bottom over here, you know, so the east is always at the top of the map, and you have to kind of reorient your mind. But uh, let's start at the top, <laughs> at the north, and being good North Americans or North Hemispherean people, 
You discover that the northern border begins north of Gibal, which is in what today is known as Lebanon. And, and that is traditionally Lebanon. And it went eastward from there over about 100 miles across the mountains. Now, what is not shown on this map is the fact that there are two parallel ranges here. As you move in from the coast of Lebanon, you come across the Lebanon and the anti-Lebanon mountain ranges. There are two ranges of mountains set in tandem. Come up the coastal plain, you come over the Lebanons, you come down into the valley in between, the valley of Baca, and then you cross the anti-Lebanons and you go out into the desert, the Syrian desert there. And in between is this valley, and in the valley run the rivers. The Orantes runs to the north, and the, the uh, Latani runs to the south and over to the coast there. I didn't keep a map for myself, so I'm just telling you about it as uh, you see it here. The border was to run from the Mediterranean over to the oasis of Hazer Enon. You see Hazer Enon on there. It's about 100 miles inland <coughs> over to the desert. You're actually out in desert territory there. Okay. Then from that point, it dropped almost directly south to the latitude of the Sea of Galilee, what's called the Lake of Kinneret. And then it ran westward to the lake itself. Okay. So you see this big blob up here, which is much of it is um, the uh, western corner of the modern country of Syria. That was to be possessed by Israel. Then... From there, the eastern border dropped down the lake along the river to the Sea of, of the Dead Sea, around the eastern shore of the Dead Sea, all the way down almost to the Red Sea, which is off the bottom of the map. That was to be the eastern border that God granted to Israel at the time of the occupation. Now, the southern border was to be established along the Brook of Egypt. The Brook of Egypt is the Wadi al-Arish, which comes in for the Mediterranean and, and moves up to its headwaters near the Arabah, which is that long, narrow valley that extends south from the Dead Sea all the way to the Gulf of Aqaba. It's a very low-lying valley that achieves sea level before it gets to the Red Sea. If you were to come north from the Gulf of Aqaba, you would rise a little, then you would begin to drop, and you would steadily drop until you reach the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea level. It's the lowest place on the surface of this planet where you can still breathe oxygen without going underwater somewhere. <laughs> 1,300 feet below sea level. It's probably a little more than that now because the Dead Sea has been steadily falling, evaporating. Inadequate water is flowing in. They're taking all the water for irrigation and to, to feed the, the large uh, crowd of people who are living in Jordan and Israel today. And so hardly anything is flowing into the Dead Sea anymore, so it's drying up. So you have a southern border which, which comes in from the Mediterranean and angles southeastward towards the um, southern end of the Arabah. Okay, so those are three borders. And then, of course, the western border was the Mediterranean Sea. Now, what we need to note about this is that that big lump <laughs> in, in the borders, uh, let me turn the way you are, up to the right up here. <coughs> At the top of the map to the right, that big region up there, most of it was never occupied by Israel. North of the Latani River, which is that river which you see coming, it comes down and cuts over to the coast there. It, it's head southward, then goes westward over to the coast. That's the Latani. North of that, basically Israel never occupied the land. 
And you also notice Mount Hermon on there. Northeast of that, basically, they never occupied that region either. Now, I've, I measured this. We're talking about 10,000 square miles of land they did not occupy, which God authorized them to occupy. That's a lot of land when we're talking about a tiny country. It's a lot of land. The only time they actually controlled that territory was during the reigns of David and Solomon. And then they didn't really, as I said before, occupy it. They just had power over it. The people who lived there were the Arameans, which David had subjected by warfare. Now, if you go to the southern end again, what does not show on that map is that there is a north, north of the brook of Egypt, there's another brook, or it's, these are called wadis. A wadi is a valley in which a stream flows intermittently, normally. The Arabic word is wadi, the Hebrew word is nahal, the Hebrew word usually refers to one in which there's a perennial stream. A wadi usually has an intermittent stream, it only flows part of the year. North of the Wadi Al-Arish, or the Brook of Egypt as it's called, is the Brook Besor, B-E-S-O-R. And generally speaking, that was the southern end of Israelite occupation. So they didn't really normally possess the territory even down to the Brook of Egypt. So I figured that one out too. And considering the territory they did not occupy, except in the time of David and Solomon, there was another three to 4,000 square miles of land that they did not actually possess. They didn't live in. They didn't conquer. Now, if you add all that up, what you're going to discover is that the amount of land they did not occupy is as large as the amount of land they did occupy. So they only occupied half of what God gave them. Traditionally, the extent of Israel is Dan to Beersheba, and both those towns are on your map there. That's traditional Israel. Dan in the north, Beersheba in the south. That's traditional Israel. The distance between those two cities by crow flight, if you have a sober crow, <laughs> is 150 miles from Beersheba. If you could get up and fly straight to Dan, it's 150 miles. In other words, from here to Sacramento. And the width is only a fraction of the width of California. California is 200 miles wide. For the most part, Israel, even if you even include the uh, Transjordanian area, was not much more than 100 miles, half the width of California between Reading and Sacramento. It's not a lot of land, especially when a lot of it's mountainous. It's almost all mountainous, in fact. It's, it's interesting because when you travel through the land, it's, you know, it's over hill and over dell, it seems like. And uh, the one major valley they do have, uh, the one in the north, the Valley of Jezreel, is where they have a major airfield because it's a nice flat area for an airfield and where much of the crops are grown uh, today as, as it was in the past. So under Joshua, they will march into the land that God has ordained for them and they will occupy half and they will say it is sufficient. Which of course I think is kind of sad. Because had they occupied all of it, they would have reduced the trouble level immensely. Because down through the centuries, who will be their enemies? The Edomites to the south, the, the Philistines on the coast, the Phoenicians on the northern coast, and the Arameans to the northeast. All of that territory was supposed to be theirs. They were supposed to push out all those people. And they wouldn't have been there to be a pain in the neck. And David had to carry on war after war after war after war against these people who wouldn't have been there 
had they done what God ordained for them to do. Now God said he would send the hornets to drive out the, 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 um, the Canaanites, but that doesn't mean God sent a bunch of bees in there to buzz them all out of the land. It meant that God's spirit was with them to enable them to do the job. And that when they stopped, the hornets stopped. If they didn't press, then God didn't drive out those that they didn't make any effort to drive out. It's like you and me dealing with the, with the issues of our own life. God will not give us victory over that we don't war against. The victory comes through His Spirit enabling us and His Spirit giving us the victory as we seek that victory. But if we don't seek the victory, it isn't going to happen. I hope you don't think this is stretching it, but I think there's some truths in Second uh, Peter chapter 1 that not only relate to our lives, but do relate to what we're talking about here. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling in choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. I, I don't know if you could see it though, as we read that passage. I, I mean, I could see Israel as well as us walking through those verses. God deals with us where we are. God deals with, with us according to the measure of faith that he has, been, that he has granted unto, unto each of us individually. <coughs> And the spiritual warfare that was behind the occupation was just as real as the spiritual warfare that you and I deal with today. It wasn't just going into the land and capturing a, a real city with, with real stone walls or, or killing a real Canaanite or driving some Canaanites out of the land physically. It was also a spiritual war. And that's why they didn't press it to the end because they didn't see it as that, apparently. And they allowed it to be sufficient when they reached the Latani, let's say, 
or they reached the southern slopes of Mount Hermon with the beautiful water flowing out there at the base at what we later know as Caesarea Philippi. And as the water flows out of the rock there and begins one of the branches of the Jordan River, it's a beautiful place. Well, we get a beautiful place. What's the point of pushing it further? Why do we want to go out into the desert here? Why do we want that oasis way out there? What do we want that for? Because God said, take it. That's why. Um, it's easy for us to, to be satisfied with where we are and, and to not realize that God is probably trying to push us a little bit further. Why do the troubles come into our lives that come into our lives? Because God has a little bit further he wants us to go. He, he, there's a little more area he wants to conquer through us. He, he wants the hornets to work through us a little bit longer, a little bit further. You know, we, we talk about this, and, and many of you have achieved the level of what we call today retirement, and that's perfectly acceptable. But, there is, but you cannot retire from the Christian life. I, I shouldn't hope anybody would want to. Uh, we may retire from our jobs, but we have work to do. And it isn't just sitting in a hammock sipping lemonade. I don't know anybody who does that, but I mean, you know, that's sometimes the stereotype we get. And, but, you know, as Christians, we have work to do. In fact, I, I've talked to so many retired people who say, I don't know how I ever worked. There's no time, you know. <laughs> All the things I'm doing now, often for the church. And, you know, that's, I think, God's vision for us is, is to keep pressing on. And we're not to call the promised land complete until we get there. <laughs> you know, we, we have not achieved our goal in terms of carrying out the conquest until we cross Chile Jordan, if you will, uh, pearly gates, whatever parallel you want to make here. There, there's a task for us to do, even in the process of our lives winding down. And maybe physically and mentally, we don't have as much get up and go, you know, as they say, it already got up and went, uh, we say. E even in that place, there still is a is something God has for us to do. That's why we're here. And sometimes it's just an attitude. We've heard this testified in many instances where even in the latter moments of somebody's life, the attitude they exhibited, the, the, like the crushed grape gives forth its juice, that, that attitude touched lives. The reality of Christ in us, the hope of glory. God wanted for Israel that they would press on, and maybe these exact terms would be hard to force into the Numbers passage, but diligence and moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and brotherly kindness and love, all of these were to be characteristics of them too, as they are to be of us. And it wasn't just manifested in the physical things, but in the attitude they had towards their leadership and God, of course, who was sovereign over them. And so the parallel to me is very real between Israel and, and us today. And even as we look at the occupation of, of the land. Now what's fascinating, I think, is that as we move on and, uh, well, I'll have time at least to make reference to the next uh, little section here in, in Numbers, chapter 34, verses 13 to 15. We read that Moses, so Moses commanded the sons of Israel, saying, This is the land that you are to apportion by lot among you as a possession, which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine and a half tribes. For the tribes of the sons of Reuben have received theirs according to their father's households, and the tribes of the sons of Gad according to their father's households, and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their possession. The two and a half tribes 
have received their possession across the Jordan, opposite Jericho, eastward towards the sun rising. I think what's interesting about this is, had Israel, think about this for a moment, had Israel occupied everything that that map demonstrates was to be part of the occupation, all the way out almost to the Euphrates River and all the way down to the brook of Egypt, had they possessed all of that land, I think Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh would have been a little bit sorry that they settled for Transjordan. Because for one thing, they would have been relegated to a much smaller piece of territory compared to the other nine half-tribes. Because had the nine tri half-tribes occupied the double area that they were supposed to occupy, then Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh would be little bitty spots over here compared to the huge possessions uh, of the other tribes. And so, I don't know, maybe Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh were glad they didn't occupy the others didn't occupy all the land. But I think what's important here is that Moses uses the phrase, which God has commanded. And this is important to understand. This is not Moses coming up with the idea, well, I think what we're going to do here is give Reuben Gad and, and these guys over here and, and you guys over here. He says, this is what God has said. This isn't Moses' idea. And this, this statement of authority is so crucial. Wherever in Scripture you read, thus saith the Lord, we must pay special attention. And that's what Moses is saying here to the tribes. And what we discover is that on both sides of the Jordan, the land was to be divided according, first of all, to the size of the tribe and the size of the clan. And then the individual plots were to be given out according to lot. You cast lots to determine who got what. Why? To prevent quarreling, to prevent somebody accusing Moses or Joshua saying, you gave them a better piece than you gave us, you must like them better, you know, like a bunch of little kids. Or, or to prevent civil war, which was a very possible reality because later on we'll discover there was a point more than once in which civil war almost broke out or even did break out uh, in Israel. And then the last verse, if you start reading, and we're not going to read verses 16 to the end of the chapter because it just lists a bunch of names. But let me, it, it tells us who the leaders of the tribes were that were supposed to do this apportioning. But notice verse 19. And these are the names of the men of the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Caleb of that list of men, Caleb was the only one who had survived from the previous generation. And Caleb was one of the two spies who stood there at Kadesh Barnea and said, we will take the land, God will give us the land. He was overruled by the others. But for his faithfulness, God gave him the position of being the apportioner for the largest of the tribes, his own tribe of Judah. And later on, he will give him a special land, which he will request. He says, God, give me that hill. And God will give him that hill. And this man... Caleb is a powerful example to us of what God does for those who are obedient in the face of opposition, no matter how great it might be. I mean, I'm not talking about opposition from the world. I'm talking about Caleb facing opposition from, from quote, the church. Now, all of Israel saying, you and Joshua, you're a, you guys have got your head in the sky. Can't you see reality? We can't do this and we're not going to do it. He says, we can do it. God will give it to us. He's overruled. He stays faithful. And God blesses him immensely in this life, and I believe also in the next. When January 
I would like for us to um, look at some of the important teachings of the 35th chapter of Numbers. We'll finish the chapter, the book of Numbers, and as I said before, <coughs> we'll touch on those places in Deuteronomy where it fits chronologically with what we've been doing here. <coughs> 